We've been in a series through the Sermon on the Mount. We've just been looking at verse by verse, chapter by chapter, all three of those. The most famous message or sermon by Jesus. And uh, we will be getting back into that next week. Actually, we have a good friend, Eric uh, Maldonado, who will be actually teaching next week. You guys don't want to miss it. It'll be really awesome. Um, but we'll be getting back into that. But we've been in a three-week series and what we've just been calling our, our vision, our annual vision series. And there's reasons why we do this. And one of the big reasons is because we see ourselves constantly as a church. There's new people coming. There's other people that are going away, moving away. We see this as an opportunity to just train, to help people understand a little bit about who and how we see God has called us to be a unique uh, community amidst a lot of other great churches on the Central Coast, but to be a place of formation for the gospel, to help train people to think about what it looks like to live for Jesus on the Central Coast and then go beyond. And uh, so that's kind of what we've been looking at over the past couple weeks. So first week, we kind of had part one, part two, part three. First week, we looked at a little bit of who we are. We said that we're a family of sinners and saints that are being formed into disciples who love God, love others, make Jesus known, otherwise known as being living on mission. Last week, we looked at the idea of like what we do. This is kind of more of an idea of the practices, um, the ways in which we see that God uses the various variety of practices that we do as a church to grow uh, training, worship, so on and so forth. Today we're going to take a look at this bigger question of like, how do we advance? What does it look like to go forward together as a community? And this bigger theme that I want to look at here today and try to unpack is this idea of the grace of God that remakes us. But in particular, I want to look at this idea of God's grace in the way that Paul is going to utilize the concept of grace. And we'll look at this as it plays out in the book of Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians, if you guys want to open up there, that's fine. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. There's a large kind of body of passages that we'll be reading. So you can open up in your Bibles. Um, If you guys don't have a Bible, the verses will be up on the screen. I'm going to be reading from a bunch of different translations today. So if you don't have this particular translation that I'll be having, again, it'll be up on the screen. But in particular, the idea that, that Paul's going to be talking about is the subject of giving and money and generosity. And so some of you right now are like, oh, great, is this the money talk? So to some degree, yes, it is the money talk, but it's more than that. In fact, if you just simply reduce it to that, then you would be missing really the whole big E on the I chart. Because really, this is not the money talk. It's actually the grace talk. It's the idea of what does it look like to be a group of people, a community of people that are so captivated, so wrecked, and so remade by the grace of God that we become the type of people like Jesus. We become the type of people that represent God here on the Central Coast, but then beyond the Central Coast. So that's the big idea that we really want to think about and consider, talk about. It's really this grace talk. Jesus would later go on to say in the Sermon on the Mount, which he says in Matthew chapter 6, 21, he says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. So what Jesus actually has to say, this is my, my wallet, it's very thin, it's because there's not that much in it. Um, and this represents, Jesus apparently says, that where your treasure is, what you have, how you think of money, actually has a direct link to your apprenticeship or discipleship to Jesus. It's, just, it's a really important part. It's one of those areas a lot of times churches, pastors, leaders shy away from because there's a tendency for us kind of within our own cynicism, to think, I've heard this talk before, but at least that guy doesn't have big, long, weird hair and a shiny suit, and he's on television, so maybe, but I think I've heard this talk before. But the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus says that this idea, this concept of how we think about money or treasure or our wealth 
is really directly linked to how we follow Jesus, our understanding of the gospel. So at the end of the day, this is one of those really important things for us to consider, to unpack, to humbly think about and ask God how to remake, to reshape our understanding gospel-wise around the subject of money and wealth. So with that being said, I want to jump into the passages that we'll be looking at, which is again 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. But I want to give a little bit of a backstory to this story because I think it's well worth a little bit of nerding out on this. So give me two minutes and we'll kind of go through this. So um, let me first of all show you a map and then we'll come back to this. So this is the ancient world first century map. Um, That red squiggly lines is believed to be one of the trails or uh, paths that Paul the Apostle took. Um, So the lower region you see that's um, what's called Judea, it's uh, Israel, uh, Jerusalem, and then to the north of that you see Antioch just above that where it says Syria, and then you see all these regions, so in the upper like left-hand corner uh, where it says the Aegean Sea, that's called Macedonia, that big region, Macedonia. In Macedonia there were churches that Paul planted that were in cities like Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, so if you've ever read in your Bible the letter to the Philippians or Thessalonians, that, that's those regions. And then there's the region of Achaia, otherwise known as modern-day Greece. You have the seaport city called Corinth. So that's, that's to whom Paul is writing. Uh, the city of Corinth was a very, very wealthy city. Think of it as like a San Francisco. It was a, it was an, uh, it was a city that was a seaport, so they had a lot of money coming in there. It was very multicultural. So there was lots of different people from lots of different parts of the world with lots of money. And because they had a lot of money and they had a lot of wealth, there oftentimes was a lot of, you know, just evil stuff that would go on, just as you would imagine in any big city as well. So that's a little bit of the backstory to that as far as geography. Let's go back into the story. So right here, we'll take a look at a handful of these bullets. Number one, we see that Christianity ultimately begins in what major city? You guys remember? What major city did Christianity begin in? Jerusalem. Good job. Good job. Jerusalem. And actually, I mean, you can trace it all the way back up to like the region of Galilee, but Jerusalem becomes the main part where it begins, it's where Jesus died on the cross, where he rose again, but then the Christian movement begins to spread. At the beginning part, Christianity, for the most part, were, was exclusively Jewish people. So these were uh, Jewish followers of Yeshua or Jesus, but the Christian movement began to spread. So it was not retained just in Jerusalem, it begins to move forward to the, what we saw on the map, that region of Antioch which was more of a multicultural city, which was more than just Jews. You also had sort of the introduction of non-Jewish people in there. And so when Paul was involved with that church, that church becomes a major missionary sending uh, platform where then Paul begins to plant these churches in Macedonia and Achaia and Corinth and Thessalonica and all these other particular cities that you might not know how to pronounce. But in those regions, for the most part, these are non-Jewish churches. And we've mentioned this before on other occasions, but the early church, believe it or not, had a race problem. You had Jewish followers of Jesus that had a big problem with non-Jewish people coming in to follow Jesus. It was just the way that it was. And you also probably had non-Jewish people that had a problem with Jewish people and their customs. Again, I'm not going to get into all that, but what Paul saw is that within the early Jesus movement, um, the church in Judea, they went through a radical famine. So again, if we go through, I mean, bottom line is we in America, we don't go through famines because there's this massive disconnect, by the way, like where does our food come from? And we're like, oh, Trader Joe's, you know, aisle three, like 
frozen section. Like, actually, no, that's not where the food comes from. It comes from this thing called a farm. And, uh, but the point of the matter is, is we, we have this, this disconnect between food in our modern culture, but in the ancient culture, that if there's a famine, that, that was very threatening to society. Like, that was very problematic and troublesome. So people would die back in those days, just in other parts of the world today where they die because of famine. So this is really severe. It's a crisis moment. So Paul saw this unique opportunity that in Jerusalem, Jewish believers were suffering because of this famine. But here's Paul going around the world planting churches. And one of the things that Paul saw as a unique opportunity to make a bridge between different races, different cultures, non-Jewish followers of Jesus and Jewish followers of Jesus, to what, hap- what would it look like if the non-Jewish people that Jews had sort of a prejudice against, what would it look like if, they were to, if I could gather a lot of money from them and then bring it to the Jewish Christians, what an, what an amazing blessing that would be to them. What, what type of a, uh, an enthusiastic display of the gospel would that tell for us to just some, somehow bridge this gap between races and cultures to demonstrate the oneness in Jesus through this radical act of generosity. So that's a little bit of the backstory. So Paul invites these non-Jewish believers who are struggling uh, to help these struggling Jewish uh, believers, and they enthusiastically respond. There you go. Uh, fourth bullet point down, this is the Corinthians, which is, again, to who we're going to be reading the story. They, uh, they enthusiastically responded. They were like, yes, we love this. This is amazing. Yes, count us in. Again, they're wealthy, and they're looking at their wealth and saying, we can do this, but here's the problem. Later, we come to find out that Paul has issues with the people in Corinth, right? If you've ever read the letter of 1 Corinthians, it is not a nice letter. I mean, Paul's pretty mad. Like, if you read the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul's pretty upset with the Corinthians. They're a pretty wild and crazy church. They take great liberties. One dude's sleeping with his mother-in-law. I mean, it's gnarly, all right? It's, and Paul's, like, writing to these people. He's like, you guys are so, so messed up. You need to repent, you need to change, you need Jesus, you need to change your ways, and they're mad at Paul, they're frustrated with Paul. All right, and on top of that, Paul, in chapter 10, he's, uh, 2 Corinthians, he's going to unpack some of the other rumors that are spreading around about him. So Paul has a strained relationship with the church in Corinth, but here's the quandary. They said they were going to give money to these Jewish Christians in uh, Jerusalem, and Paul's got this strained relationship with them, and now he hears they're a little bit, they're backtracking. They're maybe not going to follow through with their commitment to give the money to these Jewish people. So Paul's writing to them to inform them that, hey, look, I'm, I'm on my way to receive that, that gift that, remember, you guys promised to, to give. So hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Like, you guys remember that? Like, I, I know maybe things aren't so great between and sweet between all of us, but you, you guys promised. Like, this, this would be a real big benefit to these people. So that's a little bit of the backstory. So let's jump in. Uh, just to summarize, we can listen to Paul's words on this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. We'll just read Paul's own, word, own words here and uh, not make much summary on it. So this is out of the message. It's a really amazing, uh, uh, it's not really a translation, it's more of a um, paraphrase of this, but I like the way how this gets summarized in this particular region of the passage. So uh, Paul writes this, and it says Corinthians chapter 1, or 1 through 2, but it's actually chapter 8, 1 through 2. So it says this, If I wrote any more on this relief offering for the poor Christians, I'd be repeating myself. I know you're on board and ready to go. I've been bragging about you all throughout Macedonian pro- province, telling them uh, Achaia province has been ready to go on this since last year. Your enthusiasm by now has spread to most of them. So again, Paul's like, I, I love Paul's like, 
I don't know, psychological approach. He's like, you guys are amazing. Like, like, you guys made this promise, and I've been bragging about you, and everybody is enthusiastically responding. They're like, oh my gosh, if the Macedonians or, or the, the people from uh, Corinth are going to give like this, and so we're going to give too. So Paul's bragging on him a little bit, right? Um, verse 3, he goes on to say, now I'm sending the brothers to make sure that you're ready as I said I would be. So my bragging won't turn out to be just so much hot air. If some Macedonians and I happened to drop in on you and found you weren't prepared, we'd all be pretty red-faced, you and us, for acting so sure of ourselves. So to make sure there will be no slip-up, I've recruited these brothers as an advanced team to get you and your promised offering all ready to go before I get there. I want you to have all the time that you need to make this offering in, uh, in your own way. I don't want anything forced or hurried last minute. So that's a little bit of the backstory. So let's jump into the story now, beginning in chapter 8. And we'll go back a uh, chapter, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 8. We'll just kind of read. So what Paul's going to do is, what's, what's interesting in, in this little section of uh, the story Paul's going to try to motivate them. He's going to, again, he's this little gentle hint, hint, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, you know, like, come on, remember? Um, but what he's not going to do is also equally interesting. So what's, not, what's important is not just what's said, but what's also not said. Paul's not going to guilt them. He's not going to manipulate them. He's not going to shame them into giving. But what he is going to do is he's going to give them two major, uh, two major examples. And out of those two major examples... These become sort of the seedbed, the, the bedrock, if you would, for how to motivate these uh, Christians that are going back on their word a little bit to reconsider, to think about what should and what does generosity look like. So his first example is the generosity of the Macedonians. Now again, Macedonia, these were people that were going through hardship and hard times. These were a little bit inland. They were not seaport cities, so they probably did not have the same type of wealth that the city of Corinth had. Again, Corinth. Major wealth, but pulling back. Whereas these other cities in Macedonia, the exact opposite. Here's what Paul begins to write. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. I'll read this just one straight out of the ESV because I like how it translates it. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. So there you go. Paul is going to just start right out the gate to say, here's what's happened to the churches in Macedonia. They've been graced. Grace has enveloped them. Grace has literally infiltrated them, changed them, wrecked them, remade them, transformed them. And it was the grace of God that is going to lay the bedrock for everything about, that Paul is about to say. So in fact, in these two chapters, chapter 8 and 9, Paul speaks more about grace than almost any other, like, I mean, this is like concentrated grace in two chapters. So again, like I said, this is really two chapters about what it means to interface with the grace of God. What does it look like if you have been transformed, if you have met the grace of God, if the grace of God has met you, what does it look like for you to be the type of person that has been graced, changed, shaped, transformed by the gospel? This is what Paul's about to unpack. So let's talk a little bit about what the word grace means before we go any further. So we'll nerd out a little bit on this. The word grace, in Greek it's the word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. And it basically gets utilized at least three different ways in our English New Testaments. So first, most obvious, is the word gift. It's it's an undeserved gift. Most of you guys, I'm sure you've read the Bible for any length of time or been involved in any type of Bible teaching, you've heard this taught before, that a gift is an undeserved 
gift or undeserved favor. So let's say, for example, I walk up to you and be like, hey, here's a gift card for you. It'd be kind of cool if you maybe gave me a gift card too. Like that, that's not a gift. That's like me putting you in a manipulative like relationship. So I'm giving you something with the expectation that you will then respond by giving me something. All right? That's called manipulation, by the way. Um, the other way is to say, I walk up to somebody and be like, hey, listen, I worked you know, four hours, and I washed your car, and I mowed your lawn, and can I have, can I have a gift? Like that, that's called a wage. A gift, in the concept of charis, is something that's undeserved, unearned. It's just that you, it's the, it, it, it really, um, the, the giver is the one that gets the glory. The giver is the one, out of his own benevolence, out of her own generosity, says, I have something that I want to just simply gift to you without expecting anything in return. That, that's the way the word gift gets utilized. Secondly is the relational idea. So for example, let's say you are in a relationship and it gets strained. I'm sure you're going to have to stretch for this because most of us are like, strained relationships? Never? Not sure. Um, obviously, the point of the matter is we've all had this. But imagine in a strained relationship, you get offended by somebody, and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, listen, I, I blew it. I'm, I was wrong. I should have done that. Will you forgive me? And after a little bit of processing, you think about it, and then you give them something. Because what happens when you have relational strain? You have this like strange funk that now exists between the two of you. Like you can't look at each other in the same in, in each other's eyes. You can't be in their same presence. If you are in the same presence, it's that weird awkwardness of like, ah, oh, they're there, but I'd rather stand over here because it's just odd. And what happens is there's this space, this gap that gets between you and them. But what forgiveness does, forgiveness says, look, I will absorb the awkwardness and I will forgive. I will give you something you don't deserve. And I will absorb it. And I will close that gap. And there, I will remove whatever that funk is between you and I. And then we will be reunited. I will forgive you. That's, that's also a way in which the word charis is used. And then finally, Paul's going to use the word charis in the context here of the word generosity. He's going to kind of interchange it. So in the English translation, some of them might describe, depending on the translation that you have, they'll use the word generosity. But this is also, again, in the Greek, the same word, charis. It's a gift. So the idea that Paul is trying to communicate here is that grace is not only a gift, it's forgiveness, and well, as well as generosity. So let's keep reading the story about the example of these Macedonians. He goes on to say in verse 2, he says this, regarding these Macedonian people. He says, fierce troubles came down on all the people of those churches, pushing them to the very limit. The trial exposed their true colors. Which, by the way, that's what trials do. Um, hardships, difficulties, hardships in our lives, they actually reveal our instinctive responses. So if in the midst of real deep pain or hardship, we turn to something other than what resembles or re- uh, represents Jesus, again, it can be a multitude of things. It could be an, a, a, an addictive behavior. It can be a substance abuse. It can be porn, whatever. The, the, those are instinctive ways that maybe need to be unlearned. And by way of repentance and trust in Jesus can be reshaped, which is like amazingly good news that God can actually rewire our hearts through grace, through repentance to become different types of people. But what he's saying is that this trial really exposed their true colors. So in their pressure, the hardship, 
the instinctive behavior that came out of this is quite extraordinary. He goes on to say, fierce troubles came upon these people, pushing them to the very limit. The trial exposed their true colors. They were incredibly happy, some of your translations say joyful, though desperately poor. The pressure triggered something totally unexpected. Paul's like, we did not expect the response from these people that they gave. He goes on to say, it was an outpouring of pure and generous gifts. I was there and I saw it for myself. They gave offerings, whatever they could, far more than they could afford, pleading for the privilege of helping out in the relief of the poor. I can imagine Paul's just like, look, you guys, you guys don't have anything. Stop. Don't give. You don't need to give. You need to take care of yourself and your own family and your own whatever. And they're just like, no, we want to help those Jewish Christians in the midst of the famine. Paul's like, okay, go for it. It's amazing. Think about this. Next slide. We'll finish up this little section here. Because this is totally spontaneous. Entirely on their own idea. They caught us completely off guard. What explains it was that they had first given themselves unreservedly to God and then to us. So, so listen to the order that Paul says. Paul's saying that, look, I didn't coerce them. I didn't micromanage them. I didn't guilt them. I didn't shame them. I didn't manipulate them. They, as a collective, gave themselves first to God, to the grace of God. They're responding to the generosity that God shown to them. And as a result, as a response to God, they then gave, ourselves, they gave themselves to us. What can we help out with, Paul? How can we help take care of you? How can we help take care of this ministry? How can we help take care of those that are hurting in Jerusalem? And he says, the other, uh, the other giving simply flowed out of the purposes of God working in their lives. That's what prompted us to ask Titus to bring the relief offering to your attention. So uh, scholars believe that Paul actually sends Titus, one of Paul's kind of Padawans to go hang out with these guys to just, again, kind of like help that little nudge, like, hey, you guys, how are we all doing with that gift? They're like, oh, that's right. We don't like Paul. We're kind of at strained relationship with Paul. Titus like, yeah, I remember we talked about this. And then, so he's making that point. He says, so that what was so well begun could then ultimately be finished up. Now, what's going on here? Some scholars like to call this or describe this gospel math. So I just want you to think about this. Next slide. We'll kind of go through and take a look at what gospel math looks like. What I mean by gospel math is, for the most part, in a traditional mathematical right, formula, it's like you know, 2 plus 2 equals 4. 4 plus 4, 8. You know? But in, in gospel math, we're talking 2 plus 2 doesn't necessarily equal 4. It equals 20. And, and here's what I mean. So listen to, again, we'll look at this in the equation, gospel math in this equation. This group of people living in Macedonia, they're going through what Paul describes as fierce troubles, plus desperate poverty, plus abundant joy, in their case, actually equated this outpouring of pure generosity. So here's the thing. You can have somebody that has pure abundant joy, but at the end of the day, they're not in fierce trouble or desperate poverty, but they're not generous. So you can have somebody that is happy-go-lucky in life, but not operating from a realm of generosity. Or you can have people that are in fierce troubles as these guys are, desperate, poverty, and abundant or abounding joy, and yet give out of this pure generosity. In other words, the quality of people, the type of people that they were, was they're not identified by their circumstances, nor are they identified by how much wealth they have. Now again, this is radically different. And I would even suggest this is an entirely different narrative that they live by than what our world purports to live by. So here's what I mean. In our world, for the most part, 
it goes something like this, that if you don't have money, if you don't have money, you stress, you worry, you figure out ways to make more money, to get more money. So you're always worried. You're always filled with this degree of anxiety about somehow, how do I get more? How do I kind of press into that? If I had a little bit more, then I would be joyful. Then I could be generous. Then I could be someone that gives this stuff away. But I don't. Because I don't, therefore, the fact that I don't have this dictates the type of experience I have on this personal uh, level right now. The flip side of that is, let's say, for example, you are somebody that has an incredible amount of wealth or a lot of money. But oftentimes, these people, they live with this incredible degree of protectiveness. I've got to protect it. I've got to secure it. I've got to put restraints around it. I've got to somehow guard it. And these types of people live with this extreme degree of anxiety, both whether you're impoverished, meaning, hey, you have no money and you wish you had money, or you have a lot of money and you wish that it wouldn't go away, both are defined by this mindset of scarcity. That there's only a small amount to go around, and if you don't have it, you want it. If you do have it, you don't want to lose it. Guys, following? How are we all doing? The point that I'm making is that gospel math radically appends that entire thing on its head. It says, this is not how a follower of Jesus lives. He's not dictated. Your identity, your joy, your significance, your worth is not dependent upon how much money you do not have or how much money you do have. You follow? There's something entirely different that's at work. And it has to do with our understanding of the gospel. That's why these Macedonians can be in the midst of fierce troubles, in desperate poverty. I mean, read that again. Desperate poverty. They have absolutely nothing. And yet... Combined with abundant joy, obviously because of the work of Jesus in their life, leads to their outpouring of pure generosity. This is radical. Because the type of people that live with scarcity mindset and are always worried about getting something that they don't have or protecting something that they do have are driven by this degree of anxiety and stress and worry that actually Jesus wants to set you free from. Jesus wants to liberate you from that so that you're not bound by that, so that you can enter into an entirely different paradigm of life, very similar to how these Macedonians lived. The closest thing I would liken it to is experience I had had. Um, I've been down to El Salvador multiple times, and I love, I love El Salvador. I love the country. I love the surf. I love the people. I love pupusas. I love everything about El Salvador. If you don't know what Pupusa is, look it up. But the point of the matter is, um, the people down there are amazing. Like, I remember having this experience. I had gone to this church, and we had been involved in helping build some things for them. We built a clinic for them and brought a bunch of uh, just, you know, like aspirin and Band-Aids and stuff like that. Stuff that, we, you know, you can go to Costco or the dollar store and just literally load up and have multitudes. They just don't have that type of stuff down there. So it's things that we take for granted. So we brought all this stuff, you know, like, just suitcases full of stuff like that. And they were so, so thankful. Again, to us, the cost of that really wasn't that much. And the, the, the degree of generosity in which they reciprocated, like so moved, they made us amazing meals and just showed so much gratitude and thankfulness. And it was humbling because it was like, you guys are literally giving everything you have and you have nothing to begin with. But you are literally in fierce troubles, 
desperate poverty and yet abounding in joy. And that's leading you guys to give this outpouring of incredible generosity that literally makes our acts look very small compared to what you guys are doing. It's an entirely different way of thinking. So here's the point that I want to finish up on is we'll go back and look at chapter 8, verse 7. Paul would go on. He says this, Since you excel in many ways in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, your love for us, I want you to also excel in this act of gracious giving. It's gracious act of giving. So, again, if you're familiar with these, the letter of the Corinthians, you know that this was, this was an exceptionally gifted community. A lot of gifted speakers, a lot of gifted church. I mean, this was the church that was like uber Pentecostal and speaking in tongues, giving prophetic words. And Paul writes, he has to write, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the whole of the love chapters. Like, look, you can speak with the tongue of angels, and yet if you don't have love, yada, yada. But the point of the matter is, is Paul says, look, you guys are really an amazing community of people. You have excelled in your faith. You got gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love for us. He says, but this one area you need to grow in generosity. You need to be the type of people that are so moved by the grace of God that it changes the way that you act and respond to, to others. And again, like I said, this is amazing as to not only what Paul says, but also what he doesn't say. He's not manipulating them. So the second thing that I want us to notice is that as we think about this example-wise, is he's going to begin to focus now upon the generosity of Jesus. But the point that I want to make is this, is that Paul is basically saying you can grow in all sorts of ways in your relationship with Jesus, but not be growing, not excelling, not entering into a new way of being like Jesus in the arena of generosity. And Paul is saying they're actually all linked. Like, how you think about this is actually directly linked to how you are as an apprentice or disciple of Jesus. They're all linked together. God cares about the sum total of all of this. So Paul's now going to begin to take a look at the generosity of Jesus. Second example. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 through 9, again in the message, he reads this. I'm not trying to order you against your will. Again, what Paul doesn't do. He says, but bringing in the Macedonians' enthusiasm as a stimulus to your love, I'm hoping to bring the best out of you. Paul's basically saying, look, I I know you guys are capable of this. You guys are an amazing community of people. You are capable of astounding things. And I'm certain that as the grace of God is released in your life, this area will begin to experience growth and expansion too. He goes on to say, he says, you are familiar. In fact, verse 9, which I'm about to read, is one of the most, in my opinion, one of the most amazing passages in the New Testament. If you're unfamiliar with it, mark it in your Bible, highlight it in your app, get a tattoo of it. Well, I don't care, but... Think about what this, memorize it, at least start there. He says this, you are familiar with the generosity of our master, Jesus Christ. Rich as he was, he gave it all away for us. In one stroke, he became poor and we became rich. What Paul is doing here is he's literally tapping in to the very gospel itself. But he's using the metaphor of money. And Paul oftentimes says this. In fact, you can tell the gospel in lots of different ways, lots of different metaphors, lots of different analogies. In this particular context, Paul is just simply using the analogy of money. And he's saying, this is who Jesus was. Though he was rich, he's the king of all things. He owns, possesses, holds, creates, organizes, holds together 
everything in this entire universe and perhaps parallel universes. It's all his. There's not one square inch over. All of it is in shout, mine. And yet he steps into this world and releases it all, becomes poor, so that you and I, who are impoverished in our understanding, in the shallowness of our own life, can actually be made rich, made wealthy, made brand new, reshaped. This is what the gospel does. It takes broken people, marred by sin, marred by brokenness, marred by our own self-centeredness and selfishness and our desire to simply benefit and lift up our own selves, sometimes, oftentimes at the expense of others or another tribe. But he says, but Jesus, in spite of who you are, in spite of what you've done, in spite of how we've squandered our lives that have been a free gift to us from the very beginning, he's gifted us with something we don't deserve. Paul says this is the grace. Jesus loves broken, messed up people so much that he gives himself that Paul keeps going back to saying, I could, have, I could have used other means. I could have even said, look, I planted this church. You guys, you guys owe it to these Jewish people. Like, you wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for the Jewish people. Like, you wouldn't even have a place in this world if it wasn't for the Jewish people and the work that was begun there. But Paul says, look, I'm not going to choose that route. Instead, I'm just going to remind you of the incredible work of the Macedonians, and I'm going to remind you of the incredible grace of our Lord Savior, Jesus. So when I said earlier, we're going to do the money talk, I'm sure some of you were kind of like, be cringe. You're like, oh my gosh. He doesn't have big hair. He doesn't have a shiny suit. He's not on television. He doesn't have a jet. But I've heard this talk before. And for some of us, I can't undo the cynicism that we have. I get it. I've been there. I, I feel it. I've felt it myself. I live in it. But what I can do is to do the best to just simply communicate the gospel, that this is a part of the whole of what it means to be an apprentice to Jesus. What I can do is try to do what Paul does, which is to bring us back into the story of what God has graciously done for us and remind you that the very reason that why we have eternal life or hope or healing or forgiveness is because of the generous act of God. And what Paul's saying is that we cannot go on saying God's grace is amazing and yet maintain the fact that there is no connection between our salvation, following Jesus, and, and what we do with this. We just, we can't. We have to think about these things. So, the fact of the matter is, is for us as a church, we have, over the past few years, like, we've kind of maintained the same size as community people. Like, there's always a tendency for people to move away from San Luis Obispo for a variety of reasons or move into another region, another area, or get involved in another church that might be closer to home for them, whether it be North County, South County, so on. But we've, we're always having new people come and, and join and be a part of our church family, which is amazing. Sometimes there are people that are just in a variety of stages of following Jesus. People that maybe don't know Jesus, people that are far from God, people that are investigating the faith, people that are brand new in their faith. Um, and the reality, what we've seen that over the past year and a half is that even though we've kind of maintained a similar stage and status in terms of size, our, our giving has gone down considerably. And so for us... This is the reality for us as elders of Calvary Slow, and I represent the other elders and the leaders and the financial stewardship team of Calvary Slow. 
And it's, it's reality. It's the thing that we have actually, over the past three months, been on our knees praying and asking God, God, what, what should we do? How are we going to go forward? How are we going to progress? What are some of the changes and modifications, radical modifications perhaps, will we have to make in order to continue as a church community? Uh, what will that look like for us? And what are the ways in which you're calling us to maybe reassess how we function, how we do what we do, what are the areas that we can trim? So this has been what has preoccupied. Um, not, I mean, I don't mean like preoccupied where we've been freaking out. We trust that God's in control. Of this. I want to really restate that or make that clear. But asking the question, okay, God, we, we want to be good, wise stewards of everything that we have. We want to shepherd and steward and lead and guide and teach and train our church community as to how this whole thing works. Calvary Slow started as, as a dream. Um, I've mentioned this to you guys before, but my, my wife and I, we moved up here from Orange County uh, 20, over 25 years ago. And we're actually coming up in 25 years as a church in, in March, April, I should say. 25 years that, since Calvary Slow began. We started out in our home. Um, on the streets of Pismo, downtown Slow, Pismo and Beach Street. If you're familiar with that, there's a big park. We live right across the street from there in those little peach-colored apartments. We lived on the very corner unit. Um, and we were in there. We had this, when we moved here, we, we knew that God called us to plant the church. We didn't know exactly what was going to be accomplished through that. We had no idea what we were doing. We were so young and totally naive, to be quite frank with you. And yet we just believed that God put it in our hearts to do this. So we, all we had, we are like, what do we have? We have a home, 700 square feet. We have a kitchen table, and, and I have a Bible. And so what, what can we do? We can invite people into our house. We can make them meals. We can teach scripture. And that's what we started off doing. And, and we've never stopped. We've never changed. We've grown a little bit. You know, we've seen God do a lot of amazing things. And again, our, we've seen people come to Calvary Slow for a few years. We've said this before, that literally every four to six years, every four to six years, almost 75% of our church is brand new. So what that means is that in four to six years, you come back here, um, the majority of the people that you see right now will, will no longer be here. It'll be uh, replaced by a whole new group of people and faces and various stages of their growth and understanding and development of who Jesus is. We see that as actually kind of a cool thing because, I mean, for, it's, it's really, to be quite frank, it's hard, to be honest, because it's hard to build traction. It's hard to build kind of critical mass over a long period of time. Our aim, and I've said this before, our aim is not to become a megachurch. Our aim is not to create the most amazing, astounding, stellar service on Sunday morning that wows you. Our aim is not to entertain you. Our aim is really just to be a community of people that can come together, that we can remove all the religious baggage that oftentimes can keep people at arm's length from Jesus and just say, what would it look like for us to be a community of people that come together, that focus on the main things? Scripture, Jesus, worshiping God, praying, uh, hearing from God, and just strip it all back to its most simplistic, maybe even first century form, and just simply be a community of people without pretense, without having to somehow act like we're religious, but just be people that love Jesus. And that's kind of been our, our, our whole game plan from, from day one. And again, we, we're going to 25 years of doing this. It's pretty phenomenal to consider that and think about that. And our hope, our hope would be that we would love to go another 25 years. Now, I probably won't be here 25 years from now, and my guess would be that none of you else would be as well. But how amazing would it be to have a community of people that were impacted throughout some generations of this church's growth to become that next generation of people that continue to carry on the work that began here 25 years ago? Like, how amazing would that be? And again, the fact of the matter is, 
if we're going to keep doing what we're doing on into future generations, there really, at the end of the day, has to be a change in terms of the area of generosity. Because things in San Luis Obispo are not going to get cheaper. You, you know that, right? Like, slow is kind of expensive. You guys all know that, right? right? Did you read the newspaper and you realize, like, that's slow is not getting any cheaper. Um, and again, we didn't move here to come, somehow become this rich place where we can make, make money. That, that would be a stupid thing to do because this is not the place you move to get, get rich, right? Um, but we did move here to make disciples. We did move here because we truly see this as a unique, strategic place where we have this constant, massive inflow of younger generation people. Do you, do you realize that all the statistics today are basically saying the most number one unreached people group in America is the ages of 18 to 35? You know that, right? They actually call them nuns, meaning they, they have no affiliation, no affiliation with religion, Jesus, whatever. And do you realize our church, our church right now, over 80% of our entire church is between 18 to 35. Like, that's amazing. So you look around, you guys are a living miracle. Like, the, you are, you're betraying the statistics. You're defying the statistics. I should say, Jesus is defying the statistics because God is doing something here. It's amazing. And I'm blown away, I'm blessed, I'm happy, I'm stoked to be a part of what God is doing here. But at the end of the day, we recognize that something along this arena of generosity has to be reshaped. And I say this on behalf of the elders, that we actually truly, truly believe that right now, presently, in this existing community of what we call Calvary Slow, that we actually have all that it takes to be a financially stable church confident of that. We are 100% confident that within the current community, but you also know that statistically within Calvary Slow, that literally through the past several years, I haven't looked at it recently, but over the last statistic I had, there was only 12% of our entire church community actually gives anything. That means that, however, whatever that comes out to, 80 some odd, whatever, 70, whatever, I'm not good at numbers, but um, give, give nothing. Like they come, Partake, enjoy, receive, grow, transform, reshape, bless, however you want to describe it, whatever Christian terminology you want to describe, but never contribute, never give, give back. And again, I, I want to be really clear on this. This is not in any way, shape, or form to make anyone feel bad, because in fact, I'll even say that those of you that give, thank you, absolutely, from the bottom of our heart, not mine, it's not my dream only, there's multiple that share the dream of what God's doing in this church. Thank you for your contribution of your time, giving back in terms of your time, your treasure, your, your money, but also your talents. The, the generosity that has been given to this church is absolutely just does not go unnoticed. But our dream would be that in another 25 years, we can continue to see a new generation of people reached with this thing that started out in our living room 25 years ago to continue to reach a whole new generation of people. And the, the reality is, is that when I mention, I'm, I'm giving the money talk, some may have had that cynicism. And, well, let me say this. Anytime, any religious leader, any pastor, any church group, whatever leader, uh, uses the pulpit, the stage, however you want to describe it, to guilt or shame or manipulate people into giving, they literally betray the very gospel they claim to represent. That's not what this is about. This is about just doing what Paul does, to say, I remind you of the grace of God that was at work 
And let that grace so wreck you and recreate you into a different type of person that thinks about how we spend our money. Now I realize there may be an objection. One of the objections may be this, which some would say, and I hear this a lot, that I really want to be generous, but I just simply do not have any money. I get that. Again, I fully understand that and I get that. But here's what I would suggest. This is what's absolutely amazing about the scripture is that we actually have the story of the Macedonians. I'm, I'm certain they probably thought the same thing. We have extreme poverty multiplied by overwhelming chaos in our lives. But we have joy because Jesus did something in our hearts. So therefore, that equated to an excessive ability to give back. I'm certain that if we think about our lives and if, and if what God's doing here, if, if there's value, affix this. Because at the end of the day, we give joyfully, most joyfully, whatever it is that we have value to. I'm certain that there may be a few less lattes we can actually indulge in from Scout throughout the week. And there's a few less ways in which we just buy binge stuff on you know, Amazon Prime. That if we just wanted to, if we wanted to, if it was a value to us, that somehow the work of God could begin to birth something fresh and new that says, I want in. I want to be a part of what God is up to. I want to give generously. I want to be that type of person that is radically shaped, reoriented by the gospel to be that type of person that's like Jesus. So there you go. I'm done with that, and I want to finish with just four final thoughts to consider what gospel generosity could and perhaps would look like. So number one, I'll just go through this very quickly. Number one, we'll look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I'll just read out of my Bible, chapter, uh, or chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, that we see that it's prioritized. This is how Paul describes this. I don't, even, I don't think I have it up there, so you can just listen. He says, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will also get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. Don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God actually loves a cheerful giver. Uh, and God will generously provide you all that you need. So the first thing is that Paul describes this idea of prioritizing. Let him give, let, let her give as they've decided in their heart. It has to be a priority. It has, again, same thing, it's like if you're going to lose weight, or if you're going to break a habit, it has to begin somewhere where you begin to say, I'm going to make time for this. It's a value to me. If I want to understand the scripture, I'm going to have to make time. You know, we've been through an entire year-long program, plan of reading from Genesis to Revelation. For some of you, I know, because you've, you've told me, it's the first time ever reading the Bible, and I'm so stinking proud of you. So proud of you. So proud of you. Because what that means is you are retraining your mind to make a priority for something as valuable as Scripture. I'm so proud of you guys for that. It's amazing. And I, and I know for some of you, you've never done that before. It's a brand new way of, of thinking about life. The same is true with it come, when it comes to money. Absolutely same as true with this. It has to become a priority where you begin to sit down, you look at your finances, you say, okay, what would it look like for me to make a priority for this to give? And that would lead to the next one, which is the idea of percentage. So this is more based upon an omission in the text. So again, Paul was a Jewish rabbi. What's amazing to me is what Paul does not say again. He doesn't say, hey guys, give a tithe to the Lord. So a lot of times Christians say, give tithes to God. Sometimes I might even use that terminology. That's not good terminology, and I'll just be straight up. The word tithe comes from the ancient Hebrew origins, which means literally tenth. Tenth. In fact, if you understand a little bit of the Jewish law, you know that the tenth was not the only bit of money that they were to give. There's other places in the books 
of the Torah where God actually orders them to give another 12 to 13% above that. So actually the tithe, if you want to think of it that way, was actually 23%. So if you really want to be scriptural, it's like 23%. So and I never hear pastors, people preach on that. But the point of the matter is, is Paul doesn't talk about tithes. It's not, it's not giving a percentage. However, a percentage, I think, can be a good thing. So again, here's what Paul does say. He, he doesn't say it has to be 10%. He just says, determine in your mind. So it begins with priority, and then it begins to move into, I would say, a percentage. And this looks like you beginning to think about and ask God, okay, what would this look like? What can we give? What can we devote weekly, monthly, whatever, however, bi-monthly, to the work that Jesus is doing that's shaping, training, forming my heart here on the Central Coast for the time being until I move away and go become a part of another church in the Bay Area or Southern California or some other country or whatever. Until then, how can I create percentage of my giving or my, my wealth to the work that God is doing here? And again, for some, this, this is why I think it's really important that if it gets fixed on a tenth, for some, a tenth is absolutely undoable. Like you're bare, I get it, San Luis, it's ridiculous, all right? It's absolutely crazy to be able to live in the city. I don't know how many people do it. But, um, again, to say, to add to that, there's this legal requirement by Jesus to give a tenth. My goodness, that would like crush people. Jesus is not out to crush people, he's out to liberate people. But he does invite us to think about how we think about our money. So for some, it might be like, man, all I can give, realistically, is like maybe 2%. Awesome, awesome. Join in, begin to become a generous person with 2% of what you have. For others, 10%, that's nothing. Like, that's, that's really easy for some. And you might be able to, to see about and think about it differently. And again, that's where I would encourage you to think about that, percentage-wise. Thirdly, progressive. I think Paul has in his mind this idea of growing in generosity, growing in grace. That's what he means by that, growing in grace. So again, one of the things you can begin to think about is what would it look like for me if I were to only start with like 2%? Maybe next year we can do three, you know? Maybe after that, maybe we can just continue to progressively see what God wants to do and we can give away to other organizations or maybe even our time, we can give some of our time away to go help serve on a mission down in Mexico. Or so. Again, the idea is radical generosity because you've been moved by the gospel of radical generosity. Finally, prayerfulness. This is just the idea of just asking God, asking God. That's all that I ask you to think about is ask God, God, how, what would it look like for me to be a part of this? And this is where I said at the very beginning, an invitation is sent out to all you guys to join us this Wednesday. If you'd like, if you can't make it, it's totally fine. It's no, again, no guilt, no whatever, not, not at all. Um, but if you'd like to join us, uh, the elders will be meeting here at the church to just pray from 6.30 to 7.30, just an hour, nothing big, to just ask God. God, help us, show us, help guide us, direct us, show us where we can do things differently or shape things for a future. And again, we trust God's in control of this church. We absolutely, we're not worried. God is good. He's been good to this community. We trust he's going to continue to do that. But we are also inviting you to be part of that process, that if you feel led, again, if you feel moved, you feel part of this church community, the invitation is to join us, to pray. And not just pray, but to maybe ask God, how can I be an answer to that prayer? So again, if you see someone down the street and they're like, God, who's going to help that homeless person get a burrito to eat? And look, they look really hungry. Maybe, maybe you're to be the answer to your own prayer. Like maybe you can go out and buy a $5 burrito and go bring it to them. Like that's it's the idea of like being an answer to your own prayer. Sometimes, sometimes that's how God works. So 
again, if you can't come, totally fine. Just be, be praying for us as we make decisions as to what our, our the future will look like. Again, we trust God's in control, but we invite you as a church community to be part of that process, to pray with us, to seek the heart of God as to what he has for the future of this thing that we call Calvary Slow that has been an amazing journey. We trust that the journey will continue in unique, profound ways. So I'm done. I love you guys. How about we all stand? We're going to respond. And at the end of the day, all of this is simply about bringing us back to Jesus. Because that's what this is all about in the beginning. That's what it should be all about now. And that's where it should all be about in the future. It's Jesus. And the invitation for you is to really think about who Jesus is in your life and what he has done for you on your behalf. And ask God to so radically wreck and reshape you so that your entire life is reoriented around his radical generosity for you. What type of person? Get a vision in your mind as to what type of person could you potentially be reshaped by a vision of radical generosity that's rescued you, that's washed you, that's changed you, that's gone to the utter extreme for you to make you a new person. That's all we're saying. I love you guys. I'm going to pray. We'll respond. If you have anything that's going on in your life, you need prayer, I invite you to come to the front. I'll be up here. We'll have some other leaders that will be up here. As we go to the table, as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, be reminded the most amazing thing about what Jesus does, he invites us to a table. A table. Do you understand the radical hospitality that that right there depicts? A table is reserved for friends and even in some cases, enemies. Jesus invites us to come. I pray that our response would be one of worship, adoration, transformation. So Jesus, thank you for your love. Help us to be those type of people that are like you in everything. Help us, God, to repent from, to turn from areas that we're, we're not, where we have been more shaped by scarcity, more shaped by other things that want to claim an identity over us that you are saying you want to remove it. Jesus, have your rightful place in our hearts and our lives. Let's respond.